0: So I'd like to explore something with you this evening that may not, initially as you hear this statement I'm about to make, you may, may not immediately agree with it, but to see what happens as you hear this. All we want, all we truly want, is to be right where we are all we really want deep in our being is just to be able to be here, to be where we are in a whole and full and complete way. And I think that the place of our deepest being is calling out for this. And my sense is, and I trust that, if that wasn't true for you, you probably wouldn't be here on this retreat. It's like I have somewhat of a select audience to begin with, because something has pulled you here. Something has, from somewhere, from a deep stream of your being, has brought you here. And it is what we're doing here, the rhythm of the retreat, and what we offer here is quite counter to the culture, counterculture. You know, like the the stream of the culture is flowing one direction, and yet we're in touch with something within ourselves that is kind of pulling us in another direction. And sometimes we can kind of be pushed and pulled by this these two currents that we find ourselves in. And so something speaks to us, something draws us to the teachings, to the meditations, to the practices, because it speaks in some way to something that isn't often spoken to within ourselves. It's not something that isn't reflected back usually through in our culture. And yet when we come here and we hear the teachings of the Dharma, the Dharma teachings, it's like something resonates for us. And certainly that's been true for me. I mean, when I first heard the Dharma teachings back in 1978 or so, around then, I something, I didn't understand at all what was happening for me, but something was touching very deeply. And I resisted it for a while, but I couldn't ignore the call. I couldn't ignore it. Something was touching. The other day in the group, the first group, uh, interviews that we were having, I heard myself saying a couple of times to the group that meditation is uh, to learn how to tolerate your experience. That in a way we're learning this tol- how to tolerate our inner experience because for the most part we find that difficult. We don't really want to be here. We don't want to be here with our experience, and we'll find all kinds of strategies, which we've learned from our early uh, childhood, or early conditioning, ways not to be here because it actually felt a lot safer to do that. So, in a way, we come here as, we're adult, as we grow up and become adults, and we were kind of learning how to come back to ourselves, come back to our experience, and we're learning how to tolerate what's actually going on here. And it's not just to tolerate as a means to an end, like, okay, now I can tolerate my experience. But in doing that, as I am present here with what's happening for myself, some there's the possibility something to open. Mm. There's the possibility for us to touch some aspect of our being that is usually hidden or inaccessible to us because we're not here. And so this being able to tolerate what's here causes us to have to come back and settle in more deeply and more fully and, and begin to touch the, the feeling life and the emotional life, the sensation life, the physical life, the, the mental life, uh, the, the environment, all that's happening around. What, how, how is all of this impacting us? And then what happens? What's my response with that impact? Because as human beings, being in human body, we are impacted all the time, every moment of our experience through the the five senses and through our mind. You know, through our eyes and our nose and our taste and our ears and our the touch of our skin and then what gets triggered off through the mind door, the, the thoughts and the memories and the fantasies and the plans. So we're we're constantly impacted. Moment after moment after moment, and when we begin to open to our experience somewhat, it can actually feel like wow, it's like too much. You know, it's a, 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 it can feel like a barrage of experience hitting us moment to moment. And when I first went to India, I've spent many many uh, months in India over a period of fifteen years. I mean, that's the ultimate barrage. Is that the right word, barrage? Kind of like, yeah, just the, the ultimate onslaught through the sensations. And then the way that impacts through the emotional life, seeing all the sights, all the, the really very difficult and unpleasant sights of the, of the way that many people live there, the poverty and the sickness and the illness and the, uh, the seeing the children the way they are, and all the, the different impacts at that level. And, of course, the, the, all the very beautiful and ecstatic kind of images and uh, experiences that happen as well. But it's almost sometimes unbearable when we begin to open in that way. It's like life is hardly bearable sometimes because it's, it all can feel like too much. And, yeah, and also sometimes life will throw up certain conditions unexpectedly or maybe sometimes not so unexpectedly but in some you know building up over time we can feel that something is about to really change and maybe even explode and something happens very uh, impactful and how how do we how how do we respond with that how how can we how can the human heart the human being deal with the kind of conditions that we live with here in this world. Because we never know. We never know. James talked last night about the the truth of impermanence, the truth of change, and how our experience changes moment to moment to moment. And that change happens from on one end of the continuum from uh, very, very pleasurable experiences all the way to the end other end of the continuum, which is very, very unpleasant and sometimes unbearable experiences. And our life moves on that continuum, moment to moment to moment, as I'm sure you experienced here already, just how your experiences change through the day from sometimes quite pleasant to sometimes quite unpleasant. And then something opens again and it becomes pleasant again. It seems to change all through the day. But it doesn't seem to be something that we really can control. We'd love to be able to control our experiences, you know, particularly when you come to meditation retreats. I mean, we'd love to find what is going to do it to really give us that very pleasant experience that we hear about, you know, from people can have from meditation. You know, when you meditate, you're supposed to be able to, you know, feel kind of happy and uh, rapturous and blissful and, you know, clear and empty and bright and light and you name it, right? I mean, this is what we're really wanting. (coughs) We think we're wanting in our experience, but yet we can't seem to really control it. Other things seem to happen. So... In a way we're learning uh, well well if i can't control my experience then can i find a way to tolerate it as it is let it be as it is i had an experience um a few months ago actually i in march i was sitting uh, for a month retreat with a number of teachers who had the opportunity that month to sit a retreat at the New Forest Refuge on the East Coast in Massachusetts, which is a now a sister center of the Insight Meditation Society. And we, um, the, the March and April retreats were inaugural retreats uh, for the opening of the center, and so we a number of teachers were invited for that opening. And we were given a beautiful gift of having a, a month to sit in retreat, self-retreat, not guided, which is actually wonderful. Um, sometimes not to have to hear all the Dharma talks and <laughs> instructions and, you know, the teachers talking up there. So, um, <laughs> maybe you've had that thought yourself a few times. And so, um, it, was a br- it was brand new. The center is a very exquisite center, and it was just opening. And so, they hadn't worked out some of the kinks, you know, in the, me- the mechanics of it. Um, but of course, I went with a certain expectation that here was this, you know, million dollar meditation center, you know, with all the most sophisticated uh, equipment and, you know, heating and air conditioning and lighting and everything. It would just be serene and I could really do my meditation. And it was in the woods and it would be quiet and the teachers were the other yogis, and so they would probably be quiet. And, <laughs> and just had, oh, this is just going to be the perfect conditions for meditation. And I was shown to my room, and I had a wonderful, beautiful room that was all, you know, intentionally built for meditation. You know, so the bed was right, and the, the lighting was right, the desk was right, the sink was right, you know, everything was just terrific. Except the first night... There was this banging in my wall, just really like something knocking, knocking, knocking. And I thought, oh, the w- the woman who's next door, who is actually a nun, who's been a nun for about uh, twenty years, um, uh, Ajahn Sanindra, I thought, oh, well, she's really knocking on my, you know, she probably doesn't realize how much she's knocking on my door, uh, on my wall. And I started, you know, thinking, gosh, you know, she really, what's she doing? You know, some kind of ritual or something. You know, she must be, her bed must be there, and she must be banging with her elbows or something. (laughs) And so I actually, and this was the first night, I have to admit, I did go over to her room and knocked on her door and asked her, are you knocking on the wall? Because I thought, well, if this is going to be a month of this, you know, I thought she probably better know. And, and she said, oh, you know, I, I'll, I'll be careful. I'll be, you know, very, very polite and very respectful. I'll be careful. But it didn't go away. And so the knocking and knocking, and it was very um, intermittent. You know, sometimes it could not be there for a couple of hours, and then it would be knocking, knocking, knocking. And when we were doing these retreats, they were, uh, often we sit in our rooms. Um, there was a small meditation hall, but... Sitting in the room is a wonderful, wonderful way to deepen the concentration and the meditation. And then there was a pipe um, that went kind of through the wall. That some kind of water was rushing through the w- through this pipe, and sometimes it would just become so loud. It was like being at an airport. <laughs> it was like it was like airplanes taking off. It was like wow, what is this noise? And this would just kind of come up, and then be there like for an hour and then re-, re-, uh, re reside. I thought oh boy. And then there was this this <laughs> <laughs> underneath my door where the there was some air vent outside that was just like blowing all the time. And after a couple days it was like it became an alien environment. <laughs> And it was as if there was this sleeping dragon in my wall that would just kind of come up and start blowing, and you know, just like and I thought to myself, "Gosh, you know, it's quieter at my home. You know This is really like meditating at an airport. And then this, this, the, some of the sounds went downstairs to the hallway because of the vents. And so even in the walking rooms, I heard some of this. I, I just like, I don't like this. I don't want to be here. You know, this isn't what I expected. This isn't the kind of environment that I came for. And I do want to say, because this is – I don't want this to be a bad rap for the forced refuge. This was only them working – this was like the first two weeks or three weeks of the center, and they worked out all the kinks in the system. So this was just the beginning, which in some ways was actually quite perfect, because when I would sit, I would have to really be with my aversion around that. Thought okay, this is not what I wanted. I didn't get what I wanted. I have to sit with aversion. And because there was a different relationship to the aversion than there's been in the past, I was able to just feel the unpleasantness of it and the, you know, the, the kind of the impact that that was having on my system, that it was not, it wasn't conducive to Deep serenity at the beginning, it was agitating. It was an agitating kind of energy. So I had the opportunity to sit with that. Not what I wanted. But I reflected on the fact that 15 years before, it would have been a real different story. I would have been so agitated. I would have started, I would have been feeling so much inner hate about being there and I would have projected that out onto the other yogis and projected that out onto the uh, people who designed the center and made the center and I'd be agitating and I'd really get into a whole uh, upset about it. And I, had, I could see how I used to do that and I didn't need to do that. That my practice was to see if I could tolerate this inner experience of feeling this agitation. And of course, I had the opportunity as well to go down to the meditation hall at times, which was very serene and very peaceful. But I had to kind of get over my idea that that isn't actually what I wanted. What I wanted was to sit in my room and to really go deep into this concentration and samadhi experience, and it wasn't conducive. So it was very interesting to have to let go. Let go. The situation wasn't what I wanted. It didn't manifest in the way that was most conducive for my idea of what kind of retreat I was going to have. And yet, it was very good practice for equanimity. Maybe not good practice for serenity, but very good practice for equanimity. And sometimes, these very peaceful serene environments that we do create here in the West, sometimes, you know, it really can help with the deepening of that concentration and the quiet. But sometimes we need that which is going to agitate us, <laughs> that which is going to be difficult for us because then we really are tested. Then we have to find, okay, I'm not getting what I want. I don't feel the way I want. I'm not having, this experience isn't making me happy. I'm not, I'm not getting the support for my inner happiness right now. So, maybe I have to find, maybe I have to reflect more deeply on the source of that happiness. Maybe I have to reflect more deeply on what is truly going to give me that fulfillment. Because if I'm looking for the outer conditions to provide that for me, it may not come. You know, maybe, maybe, it, I don't know why, I don't know why things happen the way they do. I don't know why certain, that condition was the way it was for that particular retreat. I mean, who would have thought, you know, we thought it was going to be really quiet and really serene. But it's a really an example of how we can uh, go into a situation with our expectations and with our ideals and kind of, well, what's this situation going to give me? You know, how is it going to support me? And sometimes it's not there. And so it, so what I find is it forces me deeper. I have to go deeper. Okay, let me see if I can be with this. Let me see if I can feel the impact of this condition on my being. How, how is it to sit with this anxiety, with this restlessness? <coughs> how, how, wha- how, what's my inner response? Am I going to keep hoping and expecting and demanding that things change and get fixed and somebody does something about it so that I can feel better? <laughs> you know, so that this will go away? Or is there a way to begin to feel an inner calm and an inner serenity that is not dependent on the outer conditions? And even to go one step more, an inner serenity that isn't even dependent on the inner conditions that isn't even dependent on the state of my mind, the state of my body, but something else. There's something else that we that is possible to touch that maybe we might even say is a kind of refuge for us that can hold this or tolerate it or embrace the experience just as it is just as it is so nothing needs to change to kind of just to to take that in for a moment not as an absolute but just to, just for a moment to take in the possibility that nothing needs to change it doesn't mean that change at times isn't also important but right now i'm pointing to another Attitude where we are touching and sensing into that place where it really is okay. It really is okay. And I wonder if from there that might really make things change (laughs) in a very different way than we could have ever expected or imagined. You might say, in a way, what I'm talking about is a kind of a radical acceptance, really. You know, a radical acceptance of our experience just as it is. Because I think the meditation, I think our meditation uh, is asking us, in a way, to, to touch that place where the mind, our mind, is not moving in reactivity. In the reactivity of, I want or I don't want. I don't want this, I want that. I want that, I don't want this. Which is so much where we live our life from. And we can say, and it has been said, that that is actually the position of the ego. That is the position of the self. When we say self I- the self-identity, or this, the self that wants and doesn't want. And moment after moment after moment, we're engaged in the wanting, not wanting, wanting, not wanting, desire or greed and aversion, desire and aversion, desire and aversion. aversion. I wonder if you can reflect on your experience here for a moment over these last few days. Can you you get a sense of that movement of mind and and movement of the feeling life as well? Because mind is related to the feeling of that wanting and not wanting, wanting and not wanting. And we can very much get into a kind of manipulation of the experience. This is okay, but that's not okay. This is not okay, this is okay. It should be like this, or it should be like that, or it's not okay like this, it should be like that. And if we're not really, if we don't have wise attention around this particular pattern, we may not see it. We can become so identified, the self-identified with this way of being, that we think we're actually doing something worthwhile. We think we're actually helping ourselves get to some goal, or get to some state, or get somewhere that we're actually going to feel better. Without actually recognizing that it is this agitated state of mind, of wanting and not wanting, that is actually creating the sense of discontent to begin with that is the discontent. Have you had moments when you have been not wanting anything at all? You're not wanting anything at all. Your experience is just as it is. It's just what it is. And it may be moments that you just kind of are even surprised, you know, that you might have moments Uh, where you're actually feeling some pain in the body, or you're having a difficult mind state, but you're not in reaction to it. You're not either wanting it to go away, or you're not needing it to stay, but you're just saying, okay, let me just see if I can be here with this. Let me just see if I can open to this, if I can embrace this. And the mind's not moving around it there's a way that you begin to settle into the experience and touch it in a way that you may not have ever touched it before. We say we, we've we come into connection with ourselves in a way that we may not have ever connected before. We're really feeling here and present and whole, kind of a sense of completion with ourselves, like Nothing else really needs to happen. And it's not just with good things. I mean, it's easier, certainly, with with pleasant or um, uh, experiences that give us a sense of ease or fulfillment or happiness. And lots of experiences naturally provide that kind of feeling. But it can also happen at times when it's not necessarily easy. Times when we're feeling... More, it's more difficult when we're in difficult emotions or uh, difficult physical sensations and, and experiences, even then we might be able to come into a way of being to tolerate our experience the way that is we would have thought was unimaginable. Just unimaginable. I can really be here for this. I want to tell you about another experience I had, which really pushed me, probably to my depth, in this kind of reflection. And what would you call it? It's kind of like I was just pushed so deep into my experience that it, it kind of rocked me to the, the depths of my being. So, in a way, I didn't forget the learning. I didn't forget the insight that was present there. And it was about four or so years ago I was on a, I actually decided to do a vision quest, uh, a a four-day vision quest, a solo. And I was uh, in England at the time, and I'd been spending, living in England and spending a lot of time uh, in England And there's one place called the Moor, which is sort of the the, the wild part of England, if you can kind of imagine England being wild at all. But there's this certain pockets of these beautiful, open, wide areas. uh, They're called the Moors. So I was guided uh, with a Vision Quest leader with about four or five other people. And um, we we went out. And it was a solo. Maybe some of you know about Vision Quest. In this case, it was um, going out without any water and food for um, – uh, or, or without any, anything except a tarp and a sleeping bag. And uh, uh, that's about it. And, um, and so, w- went out for, for about four days this way. I wanted to do this kind of as a, pa- a, r- a passage of, of right. Of right. Passage of right, rites of Passage for myself. So, um, it just so happened, it was June, but it so happens in England as it does, that it rains a lot. But I it didn't, it didn't expect this kind of rain. So, here I was out there. It, it, it basically started raining as I was walking out, and it may have let up for an hour or two for the four days I was out there. And it wasn't just rain. This was real rain, like heavy rain. And um, as I was walking out, my boots got waterlogged. So it wasn't as if (laughs) I was prepared. (laughs) So I walked out in wet boots and some rain gear with my backpack. And I thought, okay. I'm going to do this, you know, and I found a little stream, and I was able to pump some water, so I had some water uh, for, it for the time. And I just, I had been, like I said, you know, it was about four years ago, so I'd been meditating for a time, and I thought, okay, I'm just going to take this on, you know, as a, as kind of, as a retreat. Yeah. And it just got more and more difficult. Um, by the third, by the, by the second morning, I woke up, and I was like very sick and nauseous, and my whole body was aching, and I hardly slept. You know, in the night I had, um, was under a tree with a tarp, and I had like snails in my hair, and you know, it's just like the, like I was kind of becoming part of the earth, you know, <laughs> as the mud was you know, and 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 just like oh okay, <laughs> all right, let's see what I can tolerate here, and. Um, What I started asking myself was what would it mean to know or to experience inner fulfillment, to really know that kind of contentment that the Buddha talks about, that is not dependent on any conditions whatsoever. What would it be to know that kind of fulfillment in these kind of conditions? When I'm sick, and I'm aching, and there's no food, there's nowhere to go, there's, I'm completely left on my own, there's nowhere to talk, nobody to talk to, nowhere to turn, I'm in the rain, I'm, I'm cold, it was just borderline cold. I was just okay, cold-wise. It's like, where's the fulfillment? <laughs> How does one, what does it mean? What does it mean to know that depth of contentment, the the peace of the Buddha, in in conditions such as this? Is it even possible? And so that became my question, which has really been my question for, um, I think since I started practicing. It's like, what does it mean What is is being pointed to here when we we talk about a happiness or fulfillment that is not dependent on any conditions whatsoever, inner or outer? In this case, certainly the inner, because I was sick and I was uh, nauseous and I was hungry and I was weak and I was a bit cold and wet, and it's like, (laughs) where's the contentment? And so my only... Choice was really, uh, I found, was to do walking meditation. I just did lots of walking meditation. I just walked back and forth and back and forth, just something to kind of keep moving, so keep some a- activity. And I would just keep reflecting on where's the contentment? Where's the contentment? And I, um, I wrote something. I, I was able to find something that I wrote about this. I said, And this is, I was writing some things. I said, if I had it, then would I feel that joy and contentment, even being cold, wet, lying under a wet tarp in the rain? What would that contentment feel like? All I can sense is that it's not a feeling per se, but a sense of completion that arises from not wanting anything to be otherwise a sense of completion, kind of a sense of wholeness that arises when the I, that sense of self, is not wanting things to be otherwise, when I am not caught in the reactivity to the conditions. And so I kept reflecting on that. Well, what would it mean to just really open to this, to embrace it, to feel it? to feel the sickness, to feel the, 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 the unpleasantness, to feel the not wanting to be here, the feeling of uh, starting to get a little frayed, like, am I supposed to be here? Open to it, not to be in conflict with it, not to be in struggle with it, not to be in reactivity with it. And I found that that seemed to be the key. That was like the, the doorway to the question of fulfillment because it's I sense when, when when I was not in that in conflict. Perhaps there may be some part of myself that was in conflict, but a deeper part of myself that knew that this was okay. And I was making a choice. Clearly I was making a choice. In this case, you know, sometimes we don't have a choice. Sometimes we're thrown into these conditions and we are totally overwhelmed by what's happening. But even so, I wonder if there's something that we can touch within ourselves, with, which is not in conflict, not in reactivity to it, a place where we are able to stay open and connected to the conditions as they are. So in this case, I was making a choice, and what I saw was by by Inviting myself to be present, that present, that wholly present and connected to my experience, that what it allowed for was a clarity of mind that actually allowed me to respond in a way that was that I could that was, was good and healthy for myself. That I was listening in such a way that I could know what was what I needed. Did I need to? leave and go back to base camp and ask for help? Or what was my level of, of, uh, of safety? Could I be here? Could I tolerate this more? And so by having that, that connection and that kind of listening, I could take care of myself in a way that I really surprised myself, rather than getting kind of anxious and panicky and fearful and confused and there was a way that I was able to stay a bit more steady. Okay, let's just be here. And knowing that at any time I could make the choice to change it. In this case, go back to base camp and get some help, which the person, as you know, in vision quests are there for that. You know, you just go out anytime. If it's too much, if it's can't handle it, you go out. That's the beauty of these, these things, because they're set up to really test that level that depth of understanding and that depth of strength and courage. So, so, it really, really pushed me right into that place. So what happened was that I um, did get to the point where it was too much on about the, the end of the third day. It was I had one more day, the fourth day, but I went out the end of the third night. And it was great. <laughs> I was really glad I, there was a tent for me, they had chai, and you know, it was like, <laughs> I was so glad I left. And yet, because of the way the Vision Quest is set up, I didn't actually break my quest because it's a whole ritual kind of thing. So, it was, a, it was a step before breaking the quest. So, I finished my quest in a tent with a bit of, you know, more comfortable con- uh, conditions. And then, and then when the quest finished, when the others came in, I was able to break my quest with everybody else. So, it was very satisfying and very uh, very felt very, very successful to me. But it was very powerful. That teaching was very powerful for me to really understand what it means to have a balance of mind, which is not dependent on the inner or the outer conditions. To be so watchful of the way that I set up, the I, the ego sets up its ideas, its expectations, its view, kind of its view of what needs to be happening and how I should be responding and who I should be in this situation but more being able to sense into and connect with, okay, this is what's happening. This is what's happening. And who knows why? I don't know why. I don't know why I find myself in any given situation at any given time. Why do the conditions come together in such a way that they do? Whether they're somewhat difficult, you know, kind of easy or or a little bit difficult or very difficult or very traumatic or whatever. We don't know. We don't know. But here I find myself. Here I find myself. What am I going to do? And this is such, these teachings, I think sometimes I get so so touched by the incredible, compassionate nature of these teachings. Because when, when, when I'm able to come into that kind of connection and presence, what there is an immense, loving, compassionate attention that is saying, just this is okay. Just this is okay. An attention that isn't filled with with fear or anger or demand or expectation is an attention or an awareness that can hold the experience just as it is. An, 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 An awareness that can hold the experience because the awareness is loving. James was talking about this towards the end of his talk last night. The awareness being having a compassionate nature, inherent in the awareness itself, inherent in that presence, it is compassionate. And you, you, perhaps you can hear how it is compassionate, how it is loving, because it's not in conflict. It's it's not saying it needs to be otherwise. It's saying, yeah, it's okay now. It's okay now. It's okay as it is. And sometimes you can even hear your own inner voice expressing itself with that compassionate tone, that inner voice that says, yeah, it's okay now. You're okay now. You'll be okay now. And that's the voice that, as we become a bit more connected and quiet within ourselves, we begin to, we begin to hear that voice more and more and more. It's there. That part of ourselves, that, that inherent uh, heartful nature that we are, said, it, it starts to speak. <laughs> And, 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 and sometimes it says, it's okay, it's okay, you're okay. And we, we begin to trust that voice more and more and more as we hear it. We, we know that it's a truthful voice. We know that it's telling us the truth. It begins to connect us with something that is much more true than the voice that says, you're not okay, or it needs to be different or you're doing something wrong. I remember during my quest, I actually started thinking that because I was feeling so terrible, it was my fault. You know, that if I could really connect with that place of Buddha nature, that I wouldn't be feeling so terrible. You know, that I wouldn't be feeling sick, and I wouldn't be feeling weak, and I wouldn't be feeling, um, you know, uh, nauseous or... um, you know, like I didn't want to be there, that, that somehow it was my fault. It was so interesting to begin to see how I was personalizing that experience that if I was stronger, if I was wiser, if my meditation was better, if my uh, wisdom was deeper, I would be able to transcend all of this. I wouldn't feel anything. Have you ever had that sense? that somehow the Buddha nature was going to make you immune from being human, that you wouldn't be impacted through any of your sense doors anymore, and you wouldn't be thinking about anything anymore, and you would be this immaculate, protected ball of light. You know, I had that thought. <laughs> <laughs> it's really... <laughs> I, re- I saw that, I thought, you know, even, you know, <laughs> And it is so interesting, given the conditions that I was in, like, of course, any human being who was in that situation would be feeling what I was feeling, I think. I mean, anybody, you know? And and here I was saying, no, it's my fault. You know, somehow I'm doing it wrong. And how we do that (laughs) in situations, rather than being able to, open up to our humanity with, in a way and say, yeah, of course I'm feeling this way. You know? I have this, I have this injury, you know? Or I, I have this sickness, or I had this traumatic event happen to me, or something. Of course I'd be feeling this way. It's not that I'm doing something wrong. It's not my fault. It's not so personal we don't know why things happen we don't know it's not our fault so the meditation helps us let go of ways that we may turn these conditions against ourselves make ourselves wrong, blame ourselves in some way and say Now, let me just see if I can be here with myself in a compassionate way. Let me see if I can open to my feelings, to my thoughts, to my sensations, to my body. Let me see if I can open to the situation, to other people, to what's going on here in a compassionate way. And if I can't, then can I be compassionate with myself because I can't? Can I find the compassion that I am? Can I find my heart that I know is there? Is there some way that I can strengthen that and bring that forth? So these teachings are so precious because they're, they're asking us to tap into an inner resource that is so powerful and so strong and so magnificent that we are, that we have lost touch with for the most part. And maybe not completely, and as we know that shines through at different times and we're able to access that strength and that love within ourselves at different times. But for the most part, it isn't accessible to us as often as we'd like, for sure, but also in its magnificence that it is, that we are. So the teachings and the practices help us connect with and contact that as a resource for life, as a resource for living, not as a resource to transcend this life in the conditions of being a human being, but to be able to move into life more fully, more wholly, more completely, because it's not easy to live here on this earth. You know, this is a, it's chaotic, it's crazy, you know, but it's not personal. It's just the way it is, you know. So we see if we can begin to draw on, these inner inner resources that we have which we have the practices here to do that mm-hmm. practices of awareness mindfulness practices of loving kindness mm-hmm. we have the teachings the sangha the inspiration of being here together mm-hmm. the silence all of this contributes to helping us with that the guidance And to bring this, bring this right into sort of our, our time here together, um, where we can make this really practical for ourselves here on the retreat is we have these, these classically five difficult mind states that we are dealing with most of the time, particularly in the beginning of our meditation retreats. And I want to to mention these to give you a context for kind of what we're dealing with here. And this is what the Buddha has pointed out in many, many of his discourses, is is working with these five difficult mind states. And you will probably recognize these five mind states as I name them. One is desire and wanting. Mm -hmm. The, uh, The second one is aversion, or not wanting. The third one is what's classically called sloth and torpor, Mm, tiredness, sleepiness, dullness, loss of energy, uh, lack of vitality. The fourth one is the opposite, which is the restlessness, over-energized, agitation, agitated mind, restless mind, agitated body. And the fifth one is doubt. Mm -hmm. How we, usually because we're having these four other experiences or mind states, we then begin to doubt ourselves and doubt the meditation that we can even do this practice. You know, that we even have the capacity, that we have the inner resources to do this practice. And so what we're asked to do and what we're invited to do, working with these five difficult mind states as they arise here, is the very first thing it is to not judge them, not make ourselves wrong, not think it should be otherwise, but to, in a way, begin to experience them, begin to feel them, find out about them, begin to understand these, these uh, forces that are moving through our mind and body. What is this desire? What is this aversion or this not wanting? What is this sleepiness, this dullness? what, What is this that comes on? What is this restlessness, this anxiety? What is this doubt? And so in order to do that, there's a way we need to, first of all, not judge, but also to recognize them for what they are. They're not personal seeing their impersonal nature, that in a way they're, they're kind of like landscapes of our mind. They come and they go. They appear and they disappear. So if we're not judging them, making them wrong, if we're not personalizing them, we begin to embrace them, to tolerate them, to, to be able to deepen into our understanding with how to work with them and each one have uh, different antidotes and practices and ways we could work with each one. And that's something that comes out more and more as we give the teachings and talk about these and answer questions. And, and each one is worth, worth understanding and delving into to know more about how do these five difficult mind states affect me and my experience and how do I react to them and how do I want them to be different and how do I want them to go away and how do I define myself based on these five difficult mind states? Can I open to them? Can I let it be? Can I tolerate what's here? Can I not make myself wrong for what's happening? but let it be. I want to end with a a poem by um, Wendell Berry, called I Go Among Trees. I go among trees and sit still. All my stirring becomes quiet around me like circles on water. My tasks lie in their places where I left them, asleep like cattle. Then what I am afraid of comes. I live for a while in its sight. What I fear in it leaves it, and the fear of it leaves me. It sings, and I hear its song. So let's sit quietly for just a few minutes